Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena rides the much-anticipated Yamaha MT-10 SP. The SP is the model with the Olin semi-active suspension. It's only been available in Europe for the last couple of years, but finally, the good news is, it's coming to America. The big question is whether the extra 3K you're going to have to pony up for the Olin suspension is actually worth it. Or perhaps there's just not that much improvement over the stock KYB suspension that has suited the MT-10 so well until now. In the second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with Val Collins. Val grew up on motorcycles and learned to love speed. However, her real love is Formula One tunnel boat racing. These are the guys and gals that are strapped into a tiny claustrophobic cockpit only to then hurtle down the straights at 120 miles an hour and pull 5G in the corners. We went to the recent season finale in Lake Havasu and watched our friend Mike Quindazzi try to take the win. Val chats with TJ about her love for two wheels and tunnel boats. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. From all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. Yeah, so this is the up-spec model in the MT-10 range, and it's notable for a few reasons. One, it has Olin's electronic suspension, and it's also the first time that we've actually gotten the SP model in the U.S. market. So European listeners might be a little surprised by that because their market has always received all of the SP models, whether it's the MT-09 or the MT-10. But the American market has always been looking longingly to the, the other side of the, the pond, we'll say. And uh, unfortunately, we always got the, the base model MT-10, which we knew and enjoyed and respected. But there is something about an up-spec model that, that I think every gearhead can appreciate. So it is nice that we are getting that um, in our home market. Yeah, for sure. So is the difference just the suspension or have they you know, tweaked anything else at all? Well, that's the major mechanical difference, but it is a short list of things that are different between a base model and an SP. And let me go over them right now. So okay, the big headline is your semi-active Olin suspension. That's derived from the Yamaha YZF R1M. Of course, you also have a YZF R1M inspired livery, along with a matching sort of belly fairing sort of deal. It just kind of cleans up the bike's looks, makes it look a bit sportier. And of course they are color matched, has a polished aluminum swing arm again for that luxurious sort of appearance. And then the other mechanical change is just a set of steel braided brake lines. So again, pretty minor list of changes and that'll set you back an extra $2,900 over the base model MT. But the big story here is that semi-active Olin suspension. And when we talk about that price differential, that's pretty much in line with the rest of the market, whether we're talking uh, Prilia Tuono's Ducati Street Fighter V or 
B4s, uh, KTM Super Ducars with semi-active versus conventional suspension. That's about the price delta you're going to see between them. So of the Olin's electronic suspension, what are the similarities between that and the other OLED suspensions that we talked about on these other bikes, or are they exactly the same? They're more or less the same. Uh, obviously, every manufacturer is going to be tuning these products and, and setting them up algorithmically for those specific motorcycles. So it's not exactly a carbon copy between the two in terms of the software that they're running and also the, the hard parts that they're using. Um, if I remember my spec sheet correctly, it's going to be a Nix 30 fork and a TTX 36 shock. Um, you're looking at basically 4.7 inches of travel. That's pretty par for the course in terms of, you know, road bike uh, suspension travel. So no issues there. Um, but what you're going to be experiencing between the two is you know, some of the same things that we've talked about with other, other uh, Olin's semi-active suspensions uh, on various motorcycles, whether that's the Street Fighter and Panigale V4, the Aprilia Tuono and RS V4, um, and all of the models in between, the YZF-R1M, et cetera, et cetera. And really, just to give you a quick recap of that, you're going to have three semi-active modes, A1, A2, and A3. You also have three manual modes, which essentially just lock the damping into a fixed rate damping mode. So it's no longer variable. And you adjust the clickers via the dash. Uh, so you don't have to solely your hands and you know turn uh, suspension dials using tools like some sort of plebeian. Very, you know, <laughs> it's okay. beneath me. It's beneath me. Um, right. But at any rate, the, the sort of the big story here is how does the semi-active suspension work? So again, you have those three different modes. You have A1, A2, and A3, and they are separated in terms of their actual damping characteristics. So A1 is the sportiest damping setting. A2 is a little bit backed off from that. I would say it's suitable for the road, casual riding, things like that. Still totally sport sporty enough for a, for a good rip in the canyons at, at quite a quite a hefty pace but realize that that a1 mode is generally going to be geared towards you know very focused riding if not racetrack riding um, and then a3 is your comfort setting so if you have all those modes in their default settings just totally baselined they will feel appreciably different that said you can adjust everything uh, per your, your own uh, preferences. And with the objective-based tuning interface that is, is featured on pretty much all of the semi-active Olin's uh, suspended motorcycles, it breaks things down into a much more consumer-friendly nomenclature, we'll say. So for example, you're gonna have uh, parameters like braking support, acceleration support, mid-corner support, uh, front fork stiffness, shock stiffness, things like that that allow you to just kind of think about how the bike is behaving through a corner or into a corner and out of a corner. And you go, okay, well, if it's diving here, then I can add something here. 
And in that sense, I think it allows a lot more people to build a much faster or a, build a setup much faster and allows people that probably don't have a, maybe an expert level understanding of suspension dynamics and nomenclature to explore and learn what these things are going to do. So I see a huge advantage um, for the market in that sense. Now, if you're talking about expert riders or intermediate riders that have you know, a good amount of experience underneath their belt, they're going to thrive in this, this, uh, this environment because you can, again, build a setting very quickly and really just play with your suspension setup to the point where you do a couple laps at the track or you know, go into the canyons and just figure stuff out on the fly. Whereas most of the time you'd have to pull over, break out the tools, adjust the damping, go back out, you know, take notes and remember where you are in terms of the clickers. And this is the, the joy of semi-active suspension for me. It's just that ability to change things not on the fly necessarily because you do have to pull over and dive into the menu and change things, but it's that ability to just do it much, 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 much faster and experiment. And then here's the critical thing. And this is why I think semi-active suspension is sort of a, a boon for road riding. You have those three different modes and you can change those on the fly within your respective ride mode on the bike. So you have A1, A2, and A3. Again, you're riding along, say, say we're going for a real hot lap in the canyons. Okay. So we're, we want to be an A1. Okay. Now we're, we're chilling things off a bit. Maybe we're on a rougher surface of the road. We're on some really beat up tarmac, like we're riding in the Malibu canyons. Okay. So now we want to bump down to <laughs> A2, soften things up a bit. Well, now the riding day is done. We've had our lunch or, you know, a late brunch or whatever it is. We're, we're full of pancakes and all sorts of good stuff. <laughs> now we're going to put it in A3 and cruise home and use that cruise control. And it's like, you kind of have three bikes in one with semi-active suspension. So it's a long way of saying there's some pretty significant benefits here. Now, would I kick sand at conventional suspension? No, not necessarily. Conventional suspension still obviously works. This just gives you an advantage over that. Now, in terms of the actual functionality of it and how it works, because I've told you the benefits, but the actual functioning of it and, and its road holding manners, yeah, the stuff works really well. So, you know, we did some street riding or I've done some street riding on this thing, you know, uh, quite a bit so far, even took it to the racetrack and that semi-active suspension really keeps it composed, whether you're at, you know, the fast pace of a racetrack environment or you're in the canyons, you can always trust that it's gonna be able to maintain the 472 pound motorcycle moving around underneath you. It's very stable. It doesn't dive or, or squat excessively. And all that damping just keeps it extremely controlled and really kind of pushes it in a more neutral direction, we'll say. So you don't get excessive uh, chassis pitch, um, we'll say. Now, in terms of pure handling, uh, I would say dialing in your suspension settings and things like that, you're going to be able to create a more pointed MT-10 over the base model. Not that the MT-10 base model isn't capable of doing this. It is. It's just with the semi-active suspension, I feel like it has, one, 
uh, better uh, suspension actuation because this is a much higher level of fork and shock overall. So the ride quality, I think, is just um, elevated. But then above that, you have to consider that it is doing a, a much more, um, we'll say, well-rounded job of dealing with potholes and hard hits and things like that. So it does stave off a lot of discomfort that you might feel on the road, unless you're on a super bumpy surface and you plop it in A1 and you kind of have your sporty settings in there, then it's kind of like riding a skateboard, but that goes without saying, because you do the same thing if you came straight from the racetrack and then started ripping your favorite beat, beat up Canyon road, it's right. going to feel pretty harsh. True. That's just suspension settings at work. That said, handling of the bike, you know, very stable, very composed. I wouldn't rate the MT-10 or the MT-10 SP as the quickest handling motorcycles in the super naked class. But what I would say is that it's a trade-off in pure agility instead of a compromise. So sure, it's not going to be as quick-footed as say your Street Fighter V4s, your Aprilia Tuonos or or Subaru cars, that's fine. The MT-10 is sort of steering itself in that street direction anyway, which is okay. So it's presenting an alternative, not necessarily a compromise. And that's something that I do wanna make clear. So essentially the, the electronic suspension is faster reacting than the standard uh, suspension on the standard bike. It sounds like there's less stiction on, on that suspension. So it just reacts faster and, and, and a little bit quicker to bumps and, and that kind of stuff, giving a smoother ride. Correct, yeah, I would agree with that 100%. The fork actuation is better. There's less stiction in the fork, in the shock as well. And like you said, it has the ability to react to things as it goes over them instead of just dealing with a conventional static suspension setting to where you could be right in the realm where you need to be, or it could be outside of that, depending on the road quality, your speed, weight, and numerous other factors. So again, what semi-active suspension uh, demonstrates to me is just that ability to have a much more, we'll say, well-rounded operating window. You can do a lot more with it, and you can do a lot more with it in a shorter period of time. Conventional suspension is capable of, you know, 85, 90% of what semi-active suspension is doing in terms of just its actual functionality. But the clear difference is being able to go down the road and have suspension that works within your setup parameters to always give you that optimal ride quality. Now, again, you can push semi-active suspension way out of its parameters, depending on what you're doing, but you can also do that to conventional suspension. So I'm not saying it's a cure-all band-aid and you know dr bronner's miracle elixir, elixir it's <laughs> these things are what they are and you have to you know use them within their 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 parameters but it's it's a big step up in terms of suspension the advantage of the of the real world nomenclature and 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 doing it is because i think there's a lot of riders out there me included who can feel what the bike is doing and know what you want the bike to start doing correctly or stop doing wrongly 
but you don't have any idea how to do that with with conventional suspension so you're sitting there going well do i add more rebound or do i need more compression or perhaps if i just went up four clicks on something else then you know thus and such would happen and half the time i don't even know if it if it's something at the rear that is affecting the front so unless you have a really good understanding of how suspension can fix problems on the bike this is a much better way of going because you're like okay this is this is a problem in the mid corner so i just you know add thus and such on the menu and it'll it'll pretty much tell you and i found certainly when i've used it i found that really helpful um so i i think it really helps the the lay person a lot yeah yeah i'd agree i mean we touched on that a little bit and it it does two things. So it is a double-edged sword and you, you touched on a point that, that is interesting. It definitely opens things up to the layperson in terms of the nomenclature. Like we said, it has acceleration support, braking support, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the only sort of observation I would have about that is you're adjusting within that sliding scale within that specific parameter. What it isn't telling you is what it's actually doing. Because there are numerous ways to get to the same solution with suspension. You know, for example... Yes, that's true. If you're slamming the front end down, well, there could be multiple reasons why that's happening. You may need additional spring. You may need, um, you know, more damping. You may need more preload. You may need X, Y, Z. Now, if you're in that realm, you can also do something where like you mentioned before you can start looking at the back of the bike and say okay well if i'm going down a little too fast in the front and it's sort of unloading altogether well what if i slow down the the rebound rate in the rear and that can often help you out at the other end of the, the spectrum or the under other end of the motorcycle i should say um you know to that same degree adding preload you know, and getting your sag and things like that and getting it within a good range um, for you, your weight, riding style, uh, skill level, et cetera, et cetera. That's going to be hugely beneficial. But again, some people start just cranking preload and eventually adding preload becomes a detriment and a problem whether than or instead of helping the situation. So, and we should be clear, the Olin's, smart EC 2.0 system, whether we're talking the MT-10 SP, the, you know, various Ducati models that feature it, Aprilia, uh, Honda, Yamaha, they do not have semi-active preload adjustment. That is still manual. Uh, none okay. of the sport bikes have a, a, an adjust or, a, or an electronically adjusted preload setting. That's just not a thing. Um, it is on touring bikes, but it's a whole different ballgame. At any rate, yeah, you know, for the layperson, definitely helps out. And then for the more experienced rider, and that sort of leads us into that next part of the conversation that I wanted to hit, you have the M1, M2, and M3 settings. Again, it creates a fixed damping mode. So imagine just electronic suspension that acts like conventional suspension. It's not variable damping. And then it uses conventional nomenclature. So compression, rebound. Um, and you just adjust from there. You have all your, your various clicks. It's just done from the dash. So if you are that experienced rider and you're like, okay, look, I know what I'm doing here. 
I have my semi-active modes for the road, but I'm at the racetrack. I'm going to do this. Boom, 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 boom. There you go. So it really covers both ends of the spectrum. You have, we'll say, I would never recommend the NT10 for a beginner rider, but we'll say an <laughs> intermediate to advanced rider that may, may have, you know, not brushed up on his suspension nomenclature and uh, sort of behaviors and dynamics as well as he should have. And then you have the experienced, you know, true track day guy, club racer, whatever, just an experienced guy, guy or gal. And they have M1, M2, and M3 to take care of them as well. So again, yeah, it's a $3,000 upkick basically, but it does quite a bit. So it does change the riding experience over the, over the base model. Um, sure. Again, it's all going to be very relative. It just adds that extra, you know, air of, of uh, smoothness to the whole affair. Okay. Does it really, I mean, does it truly affect the handling? Would you say the bike handles better or it turns sharper or it, it, it does it change anything really with the bike's handling? I mean, you've talked a little bit about that, but I really wondered if this was just a sort of a, a convenience thing and a, um, you know, improvement in, in rider adjustability and understanding of that, as we just mentioned. But does it actually, could you say that the SP is a better handling bike than the stock MT-10? Not without doing a back-to-back -back comparison. Um, and I'm, I'm not trying to avoid the question. That's just one of those things where... And it's just not obvious. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's... It's something that I would want to do a back-to-back -back comparison for, if only for my own enjoyment and, and notes. But the reality is, I think all of the things that we've talked about with the semi-active suspension, you could easily argue, and I would argue, that you can take the MT-10 and make it an easy, a, a better handling motorcycle quicker and easier than you would with a conventionally sprung bike. And it will do that in a wider range of scenarios as well. Because again, conventionally um, sprung uh, suspension, you'll just have your parameters. They are what they are as you're going down the road. And as you meet different environments, well, you may be in the range, you may be outside of the range for those environments. Whereas the semi-active suspension, you have various modes and you can work within those modes as well. So gives you a little bit more room. Um, I, I would say just sort of off the cuff that, yeah, you can make it a more pointed bike, but overall the MT-10 handles the way the MT-10 handles, whether it's the SP or the MT, uh, the base model MT-10. It, again, it really focuses on stability. And so it does like more direction through the corners, you know, thinking about my track day at Buttonwillow trail breaking into cotton corners so that'd be turn three yeah turn three right trail and trailing in i'm kind of giving some feedback into the bar and pushing it in and to me that stability allows me the confidence to actually start pushing the bike around in the direction that i want to go because again if you start riding a a much more agile motorcycle that starts bordering on finicky, if not uh, unstable. 
and it, we've all ridden bikes with that with that either are like that in terms of nature or just whoever set it up is um, a quote unquote special person. And, um, you know, having that confidence to shove the bike around as you want to, as you see fit and be as aggressive as you want to. Again, that's not a compromise to me. That's a trade-off, you know, taking a particular philosophy and running with that. So I, that was a long way to say that, yeah, I'm not sure if it handles better than the MT-10 outright, but it handles pretty damn good. So, okay. Yeah. Right. Okay, that's absolutely terrific. So I take it the suspension, um, this is completely standalone. It is completely isolated. So it's not tied into any of the power maps and there's no sort of overall, you know, sport setting or something. You just, the suspension is completely separate from the, the power maps. Yeah, so you have four ride modes total. You have A, B, C, and D. And it's best to think about them as just corrals for your various settings. So you have levels one through four in your power maps. You have levels, I think, one through five for traction control, three slide control, uh, your up-down quick shifter, wheelie control, which is three levels. And then you have two ABS modes. You have a non-IMU using ABS level one, I believe. And then you have an IMU using ABS level two. Interestingly, Level one is supposed to be the aggressive mode, as I understand it, because it removes the IMU and allows you to carry higher lean angle. But at the racetrack, um, for whatever reason, in those really hard braking zones, especially if it was a bumpy braking zone, so coming into turn two at Buttonwillow in particular, it would actually trigger pretty aggressively. So I ended up opting for the, I guess we'll say, less aggressive ABS mode and had a much better experience. It would, it would trigger ABS, you know, at higher lean angles and lean angles that I wouldn't necessarily think were all that impressive, but um, it doesn't do it in an extremely intrusive way where it's like, and, you know, stealing your braking power, like we would see on bikes from a few years ago. Um, you can feel it pulsing in the lever just a hair and you're like, ah, okay, whatever. But by then you're sort of trailing off anyway. So Right. I generally don't hammer the brakes at 80% when my knee's on the ground. So it's not something I really care about. Um, and if I did, well, I'd probably be well on my way to crashing or hitting someone. <laughs> but that said, yeah, the suspension modes are isolated. And I just wanted to cover the electronics that you got there. They are, the rider aids are derived from the, the R1. So it is sort of familiar territory. And what really impresses me about this bike at the racetrack, especially is the slide control on TC. I think it really helps manage any of those big step outs when you're getting on the gas very aggressively, say out of those uh, hard acceleration areas at the racetrack, uh, turn two, um, we'll say coming onto the front straight, and then there's a massive bump right there um, at Buttonwillow Raceway. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the slide control on TC, it definitely felt coming into wheelie bump and exiting Riverside. There's a nice bump there and you're going pretty quick. And also by the time you hit the apex, you're getting back on the gas very, very hard. So again, all the electronics, I really appreciate that. And again, you know, Yamaha is sort of positioning this more as a street bike. That said, you know, the engine, um, it is as we know it. It's the same 998cc CP4 engine, and 
you know, they've tuned it for torque. So again, they've lost the titanium, you know, the lightweight titanium internals that the R1 and R1M have, because this bike isn't necessarily about, you know, top end power for the racetrack. It's sure. about torque, torque, torque. And that's what they're focusing on in terms of tuning. So it has, you know, steel valves and steel components, which actually add a little bit of inertia and help build that, that lower rev steam better. Um, so I would say it's a much more low range or low end and mid range punchy inline four cylinder engine, which isn't entirely um, characteristic, characteristic of inline four motorcycles in general. In a lot of ways, we could say, especially older inline fours, that they're much peakier and focused on high-end power. That said, yeah, if you were to do a back-to-back -back comparison with an MT-10 and an YZF-R1, you'll probably notice that the R1 has much more legs when you're really getting up into those triple-digit speeds and ringing out um, you know, at, at the, the upper ends of that RPM band. So it's a trade-off, right? Sure. Um, do you need all that top end? Well, unless you're running down the straight straightaway of Coda or some other racetrack with a gigantic straightaway, it's not that big of a deal. Um, right. Frankly, I don't really care. And um, if you were to reflash it, well, I guarantee you'd you'd gain something up top, um, and and well, everywhere else as well. well. So that's kind of the engine in a nutshell. That said, it does feature all the same changes with the MTT. MT10 platform that we reviewed a couple months back. So it has the new intake system, which actually allows those forward facing intake ducts to function instead of just being there for an aesthetic choice. And as well as that, there are some little grills on top of the fuel tank that allow you to hear more of the engine sound. And I don't think I'm being biased when I say this, but the cross-plane engine configuration is genuinely one of the best engine exhaust notes on the market. You know, next to the RSV4, I'm you're sort of putting me in a Sophie's Choice situation if you made me decide <laughs> between which one. Um, it, it, it really is. I mean, a, a friend of mine just bought a, an, an MT10, and he's notorious for you know putting all sorts of stuff on it on his bikes and uh we went for a ride on sunday and he stopped and he said you know he said the intake sound on this bike coming out of those slots that you're talking about is so good that he said i'm almost considering not putting a pipe on it yeah but of course he will put a pipe on it but he was he was he said this thing sounds really good just out of the box just from the intake roll yeah yeah of course and you know putting putting pipes on things remapping them you're gonna open up some power in different areas and you will also be changing some of those throttle map characteristics which might be nice in this case because level mode or sorry uh, power mode level one which is the most aggressive map even in a racetrack setting i still think it's a bit snatchy um when i rode it in north carolina we were on the blue ridge mountain parkway those are really high speed sort of sweeping canyon roads they're not tight technical you know no. on off throttle sort of deal so when we wrote it in malibu and when i wrote it in my, in my area you know in subsequent rides much tighter environments 
that aggressive power map wasn't something I was keen on. Power mode level two, I think, is a good middle ground between, well, that's just what I, I leave it in constantly. Level three backs things off more, and level four is your rain mode and actually cuts power, if I remember correctly. However, the, the power maps from the prior generation MT10s up to the 22 plus is significantly better. They have a new ride by wire throttle. It's much, 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 much better. Um, and that also brings me into the quick shifter behavior. You know, on the street, the up down quick shifter thing works great. You know, you just kind of give the, give the lever a tap and there you go. Right. Now, interestingly, and I did not expect this, when you're at this sort of extreme environment of the racetrack, it does expose some conservative quick shifter programming. So when you're really, really high up in the RPM range, kind of flirting with the limiter, you can hesitate or you can experience some hesitation on the upshift. So you might have to crack the throttle off just a hair and get that shift. Now, that's not so much of an issue because that's sort of a, a very specific situation, um, depending on where you are on a racetrack and the gearing and the configuration, et cetera, et cetera. What does become a more consistent issue and something we are starting to see on a handful of bikes, um, when you spike the revs on those rapid fire racetrack, you know, downshifts into the hard braking zones, it's not a big fan of that. I would blame that on, you know, more conservative um, overrev protection because it just doesn't want you shifting super high or downshifting in the, in the, you know, the, the upper regions of the RPM band. So my solution is to use the quick shifter, which works really nicely through most of the gearbox and then grab those last, that last shift or two with the clutch. Um, the other solution would be to space out your shifting. So you kind of have to start your braking zone a little bit earlier than you would say on like an R1 or something. And I bring up the R1 specifically because all of this technology is derived from the R1 and the R1 does not exhibit this behavior at all. You can be as mean as you want to with that quick shifter and it's not going to, it's not going to you know, say anything otherwise, it's going to do exactly what you want. So little interesting there and, and, and something that uh, I actually haven't seen. Generally speaking, if you see some weird behaviors on the street, those are going to translate to the track. Um, but it works beautifully on the street. And again, I would say that's more, um, you know, the, the MT-10 at the end of the day is a street focused naked bike that can rip track days, no problem, as we've already talked about. But yeah. that's one minor, minor issue there. Sure. Actually, uh, my GSX-R1000 Suzuki addresses that. It has two levels of quick shifter speed. Um, and again, you can go into the menu. It's a pretty simple change. And you can speed it up. So for track type situations, as you describe, um, I put it on the quickest setting. On the street, I put it on the slower setting. So it just seems like a pretty easy, easy way to, to set things. But uh, yeah, and but anyway, I mean, you know, that's that, that's great. I mean, if that's, you know, that's really hardly a shortcoming, I would say, of the MT-10, but definitely 
you know, just an interesting little quirk. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And sort of the, the last little bit of it, you know, we already know it to be a comfortable motorcycle, naked, sure. upright, not much wind protection because it is naked, but it does better than some of the other naked bikes in the class. I would say specifically the Super Duke R because the Super Duke is so narrow by comparison. And we're talking about the MT-10 that's equipped with an inline four. So it is a little wider, punches a little wider hole in the wind. But again, it's naked. Kind of be mentally prepared for that. All naked bikes, you sort of take it to the chest. There is a larger windscreen available. It's optional. Um, and the last change is the steel braided brake lines. Um, last we met the MT-10, the base model, a few months back. One of my criticisms of it was that the feel at the lever just didn't have that attack I really want for a motorcycle of this performance level. And despite the fact that we are using steel braided brake lines, and I do appreciate them as that can give you a, a, a firmer feel at the lever and prevent expansion, especially when you start getting some serious heat into the brakes. So I did not experience any fade at the racetrack and that's crucial. Um, you know, I, I'm still hunting for that, that more aggressive bite. So now that we got steel braided brake lines, I think the next step would be to throw in a more aggressive brake pad. Now, Yamaha, this is something that it, it's more of a philosophy kind of bubbling to the surface here because they do actually think about this. Again, street bike, maybe having a, a bike with super aggressive you know, braking bite isn't the best for street riding. I'll buy that argument. That said, it's still got a pretty gnarly engine in it and um you kind of ride it like a maniac the whole time that's an exaggeration but it is an engine that coaxes you to do bad things and <laughs> having that extra little bite i would appreciate personally however i can see why someone would not want that especially at low speeds that said maybe bumping to a more aggressive brake pad would help get some of that that initial attack back Right. Now, kind of summing up the bike, we are talking about a motorcycle that's getting up into that $16,899 range. And the sad fact is its competition is really going north in terms of pricing. It's none of these motorcycles are getting cheaper. Weird, I know. Mm -hmm. However, when you compare it to the upper echelon of the market, say the Ducati Street Fighter, the Aprilia Tuono, the BMW S1000R, KTM Super Duke, uh, Triumph Speed Triple, 1200 RS. Those are bikes that are near 20,000, if not cresting deep into the 20,000 range, you know, respectively. It still presents a value option without being a budget option, if you guys understand my meaning there. And again, it, it presents an alternative to say the more hardcore nakeds of the class. Yes, some of these bikes like the Street Fighter, the Tuono, I don't wanna get into direct comparisons without actually doing a direct comparison. Yes, some of those bikes are just more hardcore and they offer a higher performance ceiling at the racetrack. The thing is Yamaha could have built that bike 
but they have this motorcycle called the YZF-R1. So if you're hunting lap times, right. then go ahead and buy that. If you want a bike that's well-rounded, extremely versatile, can do your touring, can do your sporty, sporty days in the canyons, commute, and then also rip track days, the MT-10 is a really good option. And that's all I got to say about that. Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've always found with the MT-10 that you just feel instantly at home on it. It's it's a really easy bike to ride, got a great throttle connection. I mean, it's just really intuitive, just a beautiful machine. Okay. All right. Thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it. That's uh, that's great. Um, I think we'll leave it up to the listener to decide whether they want to spend that extra 3K, but it actually does sound like it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree. Right. Good stuff. All right. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah. In this second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with Val Collins. Val grew up on motorcycles and learned to love speed. However, her real love is Formula One tunnel boat racing. These are the guys and gals that are strapped into a tiny claustrophobic cockpit only to then hurtle down the straights at 120 miles an hour and pull 5G in the corners. We went to the recent season finale in Lake Havasu and watched our friend Mike Quindazzi try to take the win. Val chats with TJ about her love for two wheels and tunnel boats. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. It probably seems a bit odd because we just met very briefly, but just to set the scene for people listening, um, we were invited to Lake Havasu to join the pit crew and go racing and I was getting very excited and then Arthur said to me it's Formula One powerboat racing I was like wow a friend of his well it's a lovely couple Emma and Mike Quindazzi have buckshot racing and they own this fabulous Formula One powerboat it was just incredible and I got there it's so exciting just um, you know the bars the machines the sunshine <laughs> so we had a and learn to look. I'm very addicted to that racing. <laughs> it's addicting. Every weekend, is this your go-to? Oh, we race um, about every other month. So it's we don't get to get together that often. Um, we're hoping to have a, a lot more races. Um, during COVID, we lost some of our race sites, so uh, we couldn't couldn't race during that time. So um we're hoping to pick up like pittsburgh was a big one um that we didn't get to run this year right so hopefully we'll get those back hoping to get some more dates in and in colorado there's a big one in colorado we love we like to travel we move around a lot so i'm very excited to see some more now i got chatting with you and you were saying that you started riding motorcycles when you were five the motorcycles, I, I was 11 when I got my first motorcycle. Um, I went to the boat races when I was seven. That was the first time there. I got addicted to that. But uh, my first motorcycle was a Honda 50. I think it was a 1961. a step through with the, the fairing up front. <laughs> I know the time. We actually used that motorcycle uh, to go to that same Havasu race. Oh, really? Yeah, my father owned a car dealership in Kingman, Arizona. And it was his mechanic that told us about the Havasu races. 
and this was 1968, and it was uh, very, I mean, the, the races were extremely popular at that time. Uh, they had racers from around the world coming, and so the spectators, there would be thousands of that, like 10,000 10, spectators out there, and so we, the lines were long to get a good spot, so we would take my brother's VW van, we would put the Honda inside his VW van, camp out the night before on the island, and then he would get on the motorcycle and go wait in line. He'd get in line early ahead of everyone because the line to get in was about a mile long. And that's how he, so we use that motorcycle lots of different ways. So we have smaller bikes we have our road bikes sport bikes but we also have smaller bikes and we now have electric assist cycles and we just use all of these two wheels the whole time we have electric scooters so depending on where we are we use it for things like that you can get around i'd love to have that yeah you can just scoot over we have a little crate on the back and uh, our ultimate motorcycling doggy <laughs> charlie just comes with us we put him in the crate nice so did you go on to ride anything else or did you kind of have your fun on on the little step through? So living in Kingman, Arizona, you have miles and miles of trails and old ranching roads. But my Honda 50 was a street bike. But as an 11 year old, I tried hard to ride it as a dirt bike. And eventually <laughs> that, <laughs> I mean, I, I did, as much as I could. Uh, finally, my father had a trade-in. It was a Honda 175XL. It was a on-off type trail bike. And it, it was just a perfect fit for me. I, I have short legs and that one, you know, the, the seat and the tank kind of go like that. So my legs reached the, the ground. And I had an absolute ball exploring all of the mining roads and up in the mountains all around Mojave County. I, uh, that was one of my favorite, favorite things uh, was that motorcycle. You would probably be very skilled. You're just trying everything. You know, I, I had neighbors um, that, you know, at, at that time in the seventies, the kids all had motorcycles. So there were neighbors that were much more skilled than I was, but I would try to follow them. They would go up, you know, really steep, steep roads and, you know, kind of scare me a little bit. And, uh, but I guess by following them, it, it pushed me to, to become better, better skilled and uh, learn the bike. And, um, but I, I would also go out after school. That was one of my favorite things after school was to just head off into the hills after a rough day in the classes and stuff to just head off in the hills and enjoy that. Yeah, that sounds like such a fantastic grounding. And, you know, when once you start, even if you don't go on to ride motorcycles on the road, just giving you a good basis, awareness and control so that you're ready to drive. It would be such a good thing if all kids could do that. Right, right. I think about that all the time now. And um, I don't I don't really see, you know, I know there's a lot of um, ATVs, you know, now I, I don't really see a lot of kids on motorcycles that much in the on those roads. Um, well, I think, you know, unless I'm misreading, it seems to me that parents are now more wary about injury and even when I was like 14, 
when I was about 14, I remember being out there with those boys that were the dirt, dirt track racers and I'd try to follow them. And sometimes they would kind of leave me in the dust. And I remember thinking to myself, I am miles from home. I'm out in a canyon. My mom has no idea where I'm at. I'm 14. And I, <laughs> I, I had these things go through my head. You know, what would happen if I, you know, hurt myself out here? My parents wouldn't have any idea where I was. We didn't have cell phones then, so. <laughs> yeah, no phones as well. And yet, you know, it all worked out. So did you go on to ride a road bike after that? Or did that kind of take a back seat? Um, well, I also acquired a horse around my freshman year, you know, a little bit before my freshman year of high school. And, and the horse took a lot of my time. Um, unfortunately, my motorcycle uh, was stolen and uh, was chopped to bits. And yeah, uh, it was a, we actually caught the thief. He was a 16 year old kid that was building a go-kart and he, he chopped the, my engine right out of the frame, welded to a go-kart and then got caught because this go-kart was stolen also. But uh, uh, my dad again felt sorry for me, but my dad um, didn't know about motorcycles that well. And so I think it was a, uh, a Honda 250 street bike at that time uh, that he bought me. And um, I actually didn't go off to get my motorcycle license, so I couldn't really use it that much. So um, and that was kind of the end of my, my motorcycle Your horse you took over. And my horse, <laughs> yeah. Training for when you get a man, so they say. <laughs> And then I got into boats. Was, was, were your parents racers or they were spectators? You know, um, so my parents, neither one are into any kind of speed addiction or anything like that. They don't, they weren't really into racing, but it was my dad's mechanic who convinced our family to go to Havasu in 1968 and uh, see this boat race where the racers were from all over the world. And um, at that race uh, my brother and I both vowed that someday we would race boats in that race and so we it, we became addicted right away we went every year every, it was back then it was on Thanksgiving weekend and um, so the whole family would make it a big deal to go there for Thanksgiving that's where we spent our Thanksgivings but uh, we watched these racers from around the world and um my brother bought a small hydro, just a little hydroplane, little wooden one. Um, and so I was around 16, I think, that I became his crew chief on his little hydro racing team. All over California is where we race. Bakersfield and Pudding Stone Reservoir and Needles, California. And uh, through that, we began meeting some of the, which we would call Formula One drivers like Mike Wendazi and, and those guys, you know, that those types of drivers were there. Um, and they would, some of them are helping us out. And um, I still, you know, knew someday I was going to race. So uh, around 1986, 
a class of boats came out that were like miniature Formula One tunnel boats. They were little 12 feet long uh, tunnels that I could afford and actually could buy an engine for. And um, so I started racing those uh, at Havasu and Parker and uh, Bakersville, different places. And uh, quite fast progression, say tunnel. I don't know if anybody listening realizes that, but you're sort of in, literally enclosed in a little tunnel and you have wings, I suppose, out the side for want of a better description. Yeah, they, the sponsons, they, they call them, they call them sponsons, um, that, that you sit in the middle. Um, back then we did not have any kind of enclosed cockpit. So we were sitting in a seat out in the open, uh, which really wasn't a good idea. We, we, uh, we learned that we really needed safety cells pretty quickly. Well, also the human head is not that aerodynamic, you know, arms and head and everything flailing around in, <laughs> in the speed. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And even though we, we were small, even though the boats were small, um, I ran in a modified class. So we would reach speeds of 75, 80 miles an hour. And we could still have little accidents where we'd bump each other and end up on our heads and splashing around the water. And, and um, I had a couple of those episodes um, and, and, you know, we were getting banged up pretty good. So um, the capsules slowly came around and they convinced us to strap in and put, put more protection around us. So we ended up uh, adopting the, 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 well, they call them the safety cells with the canopy on top. Yeah. Do you remember why you felt why you wanted to race? Was it you loved the speed or was it you just determined to win? So you and your brother were the team, basically, and you were the, the driver. Well, my brother, he started racing the hydroplanes first, but he actually passed away in 1986. He had a he actually had cystic fibrosis and his doctors um, weren't really keen on him racing boats, but he was determined to do it. So I would do anything to help him do that. So, uh, but in 86, he passed away and it was just a fluke that uh, I met someone in Bullhead City that had connections to a, um, well, he was selling the outboard motors. Uh, he helped me buy one and got me connections to who I could buy a boat from. So because that was like a month after my brother passed away, it was very soon after. And so um, I kind of was on my own um, because I, I didn't have him anymore, but uh, yeah. So I, that would have been, that would have been sort of quite cathartic helping you with losing your brother in a way because. Exactly. You know, it gave you that hyper interest to Exactly. Yes. I, I even had a dear friend of ours uh, that I went to the nationals in Illinois and ended up second place. And a friend of mine came up to me right after the race and said, I know a big brother who's very happy with his little sister right now. So, yeah, it certainly would have been looking down with the grin. <laughs> Good yeah. for you. I mean, the only sort of lady race around the only girl there or back in the when I was racing in the 80s we actually had quite a few women um 
a lot more than we do today. We had, you know, when I would be out on the course, there'd be two or three women out there with me. So I, I don't know why they're, you know, female racers have been kind of fading, fading off. We still have a couple that come with us on our Formula One tour. It's a very exciting sport. I was astounded. Never seen anything like it. I, what I found difficult, well, what I thought is difficult, obviously you you guys all do this, and so you probably might not see it as a difficulty, but I know that Emma and Mike Quindazzi, they have their boat, their, their team together, and Emma is the key spotter. And I thought that was really, I mean, such a responsible role and really interesting because from what I could see her looking at, you don't, you can't see the course completely. So the course is set out differently at each lake. And the spotter has to tell the driver what's happening around him. He can obviously go fast, drive, take the turns. But if people are beside them or approaching or if there's an accident or something, the driver is sort of like a little <laughs> a little kind of enclosed person who, who doesn't really know what's going on around them. Right, right. Um, they do have the side mirrors, but with all the water, um you know, they're kind of hardly, you know, not, you don't use them like you would in a car. I mean, it, it's just most of the time there's a lot of spray. Um, when you're driving straight into a group of rooster tails, you can't see anything. I mean, you really don't know what's happening up front. So the spotters are crucial in helping you figure out who's, who's on your right, who's on your left, you know, how how far the guy in front of you is you know I mean it's um what Emma does is is very very important it seemed crucial she was sort of telling him which line to take because if you've got somebody already in the bend going around the curve you can't see where they are it's just all spray it was just hectic as crazy as mad <laughs> it was just and and Emma Emma can probably also watch the other drivers and and start to pick up on how how they drive like what, how they're taking the turns. So she can actually like, you know, let Mike know that this driver goes wide and, and so he could go on the inside, you know, things like that. It, you can get, you can pick up little things from the beach that you can't see when you're in the cockpit. Right. Have you um, driven one of these? Um, I've, you know, I've never, I've never driven a Formula One ever. Um, we we used to make boats my husband and i had a motor a boat manufacturing a race boat manufacturing business so we had 18 foot um what we call the ski racers and i've i've driven those but they weren't in competition um you know the biggest boat i drove in competition was a tunnel boat 12 feet it would be, so it'd be like a miniature formula one i think i would be a bit claustrophobic you know yeah yeah i yeah. um that, that was my dream one day was to race the Formula Ones. I mean, I, I have, there's a girl in, um, or a woman in Norway named Marit Stromoy. She races in the Formula One UIM circuit over the, over in Europe. And, uh, oh, I, I just love watching her because she's right up there. She's right up front. She's fearless and um, she's everything I wanted to be. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I can live vicariously through her. Of course, yes, that's what we need these people. Yes, um, I'll look her up and, and see see what she's up to. Yeah, she's she's incredible. 
<laughs> yeah, I'll definitely find her. I looked into the cockpit, you know, I had a look inside and there is no room for anything. He was really careful about getting in and out of the boat, not to get any grit or anything inside because you can't even get there in, you know, with your little Dyson vacuum to clean it out. It's tiny. It looks so claustrophobic. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and even sand can cause problems with some of your equipment. So you have to keep keep that clear, like the, the seatbelts. Um, in the past, there have been issues where someone did get sand inside the mechanism of the seatbelts, and it actually trapped him. Glad you raised that point, because my chief job as part of the crew was actually sweeping the sand out of the pit box, you know, keeping it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Very important job there. I feel much more important now. <laughs> <laughs> and they had sort of like a six-point harness. It all looked very much like if you flip over, which seemed to be a thing that also happens, <laughs> you have right. to really stay calm, <laughs> somehow push the lid open, the roof, and get yourself out of your harness. And you're in a tight crash helmet. It just all looked... Right, right. And every once in a while, we're on a race course where the current is very swift. Uh, we used to race in Laughlin, Nevada. And I've seen the underwater videos of a boat that had flipped at, at Laughlin. And that driver is underwater. And you can see how fast that boat is traveling down river, upside down, um, coming close to scraping the bottom of the river at the same time. So he's trying to open the canopy with the bottom of the river very close. So, you know, you have to be careful that the canopy may not open because it's too shallow. So um, he had to have the rescue, the rescue teams are trained to get there fast. So the rescue teams are able to get there and get him out. But, um, but just the thought of, of drifting in a fast current like that is just, you know, I'm a little claustrophobic too. So I, I you know, I didn't race during the capsule days. My my days were in the open cockpit where when you crash, you get thrown. You get thrown quite a ways away from the boats. So um, I just let my life jacket pop me to the surface. <laughs> Pros and cons for both sort of situations, really. I didn't know that, that these races took place in rivers as well. I thought they were all on lakes. So at least you were in calm waters. Yeah, the rescue teams, that must, that's something else. I mean, really. They have to be so on the ball. They have to be watching all the time and keeping their eye on everything. And and then they have to be quick, quick to get there. So are you very involved in, in the racing world or are you, you now sort of stepped back? Well, um, starting in 1998, um, I actually went to art school. I wanted to be like an art producer for a powerboat magazine or a hot boat magazine. You know, I wanted to, to be an art director. And uh, then I got a little sidetracked. I, you know, my husband and I had the boat company and so I, we worked there, but uh, I was asked to start writing for one of the magazines and that was in 1998. And so for the last 20 something years, I've been uh, writing press releases and articles and doing a lot of writing for you're in the world of journalism, just sort of did a little sideways step. Yeah, yeah. Mostly to help promote the sport. Um, when the internet came along, you know, you, I, I do uh, like the paper magazines, the, the printed 
the printed magazine. So uh, those, there's very few of those left now. Right. Um, but I still, I still try my best to to get it all in print and get it out there. So yes, I mean it's just as you say, the world of the internet these days. We were a print magazine, but now we're we're all on. Yes, yeah, so ultimate motorcycle. Um, so that's interesting because you know when when you speak to youngsters and you try and work out what they're going to end up doing <laughs> or they're trying to work <laughs> out i i just say you know you just got to go and try things try as many different things as possible because you never know which direction it's it's going to take you in, and then you find something oh, yeah. you love doing absolutely absolutely i Beautiful. um you know i i still dabble in art that was what they you know i was directed to to become an artist that was my my skill set when i was in high school so what type of art art covers such a myriad of uh, creative expressions so you're talking about drawing paintings or sculptures or um well i went to design school for graphic design so i've done a, i've done quite a few logos and um posters and things like that but uh lately i've been picking up uh watercolor and oil painting and believe it or not, I do portraits of boats. That's Excellent. that's my <laughs> race boats. <laughs> that's good. That's such a niche little thing to get into. Yes. And I love it. I love it so much. And I'm addicted to tunnel boats. I, I you know, I can't even think of something, an object that's more beautiful than a tunnel boat. I mean, that's just how I am. So I love painting them. Stunning. They are just jaw-dropping. Of course, once you get sponsors you i mean they're a beautiful shape in themselves like a lot of vehicles but because they're so streamlined and built for speed and then you get all the colorful sponsors on them yeah I, i'm helping a driver right now design what his next year's boat will will look like the the graphics on the boat huh you see you're slipping into yet another sort of area yeah i did one i did one in 2020 uh for a driver and i really like how that turned out that's interesting that's a sort of a career move I, I wouldn't have even occurred to me so when you you mentioned earlier in 1998 I can't remember um if you said that's when you got married but you you and your husband had a, a boat um company it, it was Mirage boats and they're mostly lake river boats um our our competitor was the STV I don't know if you've heard of of those boats I don't know a lot about boats I've heard of Mirage boats Ah, okay. That's well. That would be us, and there, there are quite a few of those on Havasu, Parker. You know, we we sold quite a few to the to the river river runners, Florida. There's a lot of them in Florida. I've heard. I, last thing I said was I've heard of Mirage boats. I don't know anything about boats, but I've heard of Mirage boats. Yeah, we have uh, quite a few boats in California, Arizona, Florida, kind of all over. There's there's a drag racing group in you know out of the deep south tennessee mississippi they they're still running our boats we we stopped building them in 97 um a lot of them are still running but um and then it was our company was sold to a, a manufacturer in florida so he's still building them not as many as we did but so they're still they're still being produced oh, um, but it's it's really neat to go to the races the drag races and still see the boats we built and and I'll I even remember a lot of them I remember painting them and well I didn't paint them myself but uh yeah. coming up with the designs that 
choosing the colors. That was another one of my jobs was. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Exciting, yeah. I mean, there are so, there, there are so many waterways here. I don't know why it didn't occur to me that there would be this huge racing, boat racing sort of industry yeah. going on. Yeah. It's a real eye-opener. So what's next for you? Um, I, I want to expand on my painting, um, uh, you know, the portraits and, and actually um, I, I live in Indiana now, I, but I grew up out there in the, in the Southwest and I grew up around all these mountains and you know, red, red rocks and cliffs and canyons. And uh, that's one thing that I never painted. And I was inspired recently by an artist named Mark Maggiore, who began living in my area in, in Arizona um, and began painting those, those mountains. And all of a sudden it struck me that of everything I've done, all the art that I've done, the one thing I never did was those same canyons and mountains that I took my motorcycle through, you know, way back yes. in my youth. And, and now those are the best memories in my mind, you know, of, of my childhood. So I've actually been inspired to start doing oil paintings of Southwest. <laughs> Super, that's great. Yeah, it's nice as you go through finding different things that you love and uh, being able to translate them onto to sort of memories that you can keep or memories for other people as well. That's right. Awesome. Yes. Yeah. Well, Just I keep going. Could... You know, there's always something new around the corner. You can always uh, try something new, whatever, whatever tickles your fancy, you know. Yeah. Just, just keep trying. That's why I love chatting with people. I find that, you know, life, their lives go into all sorts of different directions that are completely unplanned. You sort of get a little bit of interest in something and off you go down that route and you'll probably start painting mountains and then you'll get onto motorcycle painting and... right yeah probably <laughs> who knows yeah who knows what's around the corner excellent well it's it's been great just catching up and having a chat and finding out a little bit more about tunnel boat racing and formula one power boat racing we had an awesome time and uh, we will be back <laughs> oh, i'm so glad you got to come to that that is <laughs> That Havasu race is spectacular. I mean, it's it's we're hoping to build it back up like it used to be back in the 70s and 60s when, you know, people from around the world, we had racers from Austria and Australia, South Africa, um, you know, uh, Germany. We had drivers from Italy and France and and, you know, just kind of everywhere, Holland. And um, then we had the big teams, Mercury uh, sponsored a team, OMC, which was Evan Rue Johnson, they sponsored a team. When the teams would go head to head, it was just, you know, it was like a war on the water. You just wanted to see which, which manufacturer was going to come out ahead. It, it, those days were just great. I, I'd love to see that come back. Yes. Yeah. Well, racing is exciting. I mean, war on the water. I like that expression. <laughs> it is, you know, it's great to have a spectacle like that and uh, just get so many different companies and people involved. Right. Yeah. High up on that hill, watch, you know, looking over that race course. Um, yeah. It, it, when I heard it, when I heard that Tim Siebold was bringing that race back, I, I jumped, I jumped on it to help him promote that, you know, trying to come up with press releases and things to get that going because it, it, it meant so much to me 
it's such a big part of my heart. I didn't realize that he built Seaboard. He's the name I know because I did a job with him. Would you believe it? Talk about it's a small world. <laughs> in London, in the Docklands, there, there was a display or a powerboat, something going on there. And I was young and very ignorant. I was working for Budweiser. I think I used to do lots of modeling and promotions. And I met him there all those years ago. And then I came to Lake Havasu and I met his son. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's so strange. Wow. Oh, yes, I saw the picture of that Budweiser, the boat. Yes, I remember seeing that. I think Mike posted that. Yes, because when Arthur said to me, he had this, you know, this this couple of these, these friends, Emma and Mike Quindazzi, and they're racing Formula One. I was like, oh, that's something I've never been involved with or seen before. And then lo and behold, I looked back in my photographs and saw myself standing by a powerboat. I was like, that's incredible. Because <laughs> that, that would have been Bill Siebold. Yeah, the Dazzler looked at, like zoomed in on the picture and looked at the, the name on the boat. And he said, I know that guy. <laughs> That's that's great. Yeah, Bill was there too. He was at Havasu. Yeah, but but Tim and Bill, uh, Bill's the one that put together the the legends with all the celebrities that came, all the drivers from the past. I mean, that I cried. I cried when I saw those drivers because that's you know I'd been there right in that spot watching those those same people driving those boats in the '60s and '70s, and I was just a little kid, not not realizing I would actually get involved in the boat racing I wanted to but and it was a dream I was just dreaming and so here was the dream I, I you know now I'm right in the middle of it and so I and listening to these guys tell their stories and I mean it, it was overwhelming for me you know I feel the same about things that have happened in the past you then realize how important that all was and everything comes home to you and you just as you say it's very emotional right Right. Yeah. And uh, so Mike Quindazzi, he, uh, his father was a driver and uh, my husband's father was a driver. And I guess the two of them raced together uh, way back in the day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Mike has been telling me stories of, of my father-in-law that I didn't even know. <laughs> so, How nice. That's fabulous. Yeah. It's a, it's a kind of a small world. Yeah. That's great. So you get you're getting some history you didn't know about. Right, right. I just eat it all up too because I I haven't found anything in life more exciting than the boat racing. So well, and you sort of breeze through things as you go when you're younger, and then when you get to a, a more mature stage of life, you realize the importance of all of those memories you are making, and it all just comes around again. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's been fabulous speaking with you. It really has. Great great to get a little bit of history and, and let people know about Formula One powerboats. I mean, they are awesome, exciting. Well, this has been my pleasure. I, I, I'll i talk talk forever about the boat racing, so I really appreciate you inviting me to, to share some of this. I appreciate your time. We'll catch up again soon at the next event. Yes, I hope we do. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. -bye. Bye.